We are continuing our study this morning in the book of Romans. We come to chapter 5, and still looking at the same passage that we did last week, which is Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. So if you are able to stand, please stand for the reading of God's word. The inerrant word of God reads as follows. For a while, we were still weak. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one would scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we look to your word this morning, we thank you for your word is a lamp to our feet. And in it, we see your mercy. We see your grace in saving us. Thank you, Lord, for your Holy Spirit giving us understanding. And we pray that your Holy Spirit keep giving us understanding. And for some of us, maybe for the first time. Lord, thank you for the great love that you have shown your children in which Christ died for us, the ungodly, the undeserving ones, the disobedient. We ask that you reveal these things to us and impress these things in our minds and our hearts this morning in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. So I titled today's sermon, God's Mercy in Saving, Part 2. And the subtitle is, who would you die for? The last time we spoke in these two verses last uh, week, we focused on verse 6. We understood that Christ came for those who were weak, right? And we were able to see that what Paul means there by Christ coming for those who are weak, he means those who are unable, those who are helpless, those who are spiritually dead. That's who Christ came for, right? And a recap of chapter 5, this is the place in the book of Romans in which Paul is teaching through a literary style called a diatribe. He has been teaching us that so far, because all of humanity are in a natural state of rebellion, there's no way to be at peace with God. That is, on human terms. Rather, Paul is telling us, if you are to be justified before God, if you are to be made right before God, as in showing up to court for something you've been accused of and being exonerated and can walk away. In order to do that with God, it must be by faith, only by faith. That is how Paul opens up chapter 5. He says, therefore, having been justified by faith. Okay, That's the concept that Paul is opening up in chapter 5. Paul has also given us the example of Abraham leading to his discussion of how we are justified by faith. And he gives the example of Abraham on how the father, the patriarch of the Jewish nation, and thus of us Christians, he was justified by believing the promises of God. That is, by faith, he was made right before God by faith. Similarly then, Paul is saying, the offer to guilty sinners, that means all of us, to be, made, to be made right before God is through faith alone, in Christ alone. Now, one may ask, okay, 
faith? Believe, believe what? Right? That's a good question. Well, believing the promises that God has made to those who trust in the finished work of Christ. That those will be spared from the righteous judgment of God. That trusting in anything else may it be a made-up belief in a generic God. May it be a religious experience or upbringing. May it be thinking that God will give you a break. That God will understand when it comes to the day of your judgment. Which may be today. Only God knows. Banking on any of those ideas, whatever it may be, anything else other than faith in the perfect work of Christ on the cross, will bring us eternal judgment. Last time we also looked at who did Jesus die for? Of course Jesus died for the elect. But as we saw, a more specific question in that passage was that Jesus died for those who are weak and in a spiritual state of inability. The main point then was, as we go into this passage today, that this is where every false religion or false, false ideology or false philosophy fails in the wrong understanding of the nature of man. Which is that naturally we tend to think that I am basically a good person. I'm, I'm doing all right. I mean, I could tell you people who I think are really bad, but I'm okay, pretty good. To those people, Jesus says, if you think you are good and only need a little bit of help, I did not come for you. Rather, God says to every person, you are weak. You are unable to do anything, spiritually speaking, to make your condition better. And until a person realizes they've got nothing to offer but to fall upon the mercy of Christ, they cannot experience genuine salvation. We were talking in the men's group this past Tuesday. And uh, Brother Glenn was mentioning how he has worked with people who are enslaved to addiction. And he says that the key for those people to finally start making steps to get out of that is to break through the barrier of excuses, break through the barrier of thinking that they are okay and they maybe only need a little bit of help and they're there to get that little bit of help. Brother Glenn says, nope, dead up on arrival, can't do it. Similarly, the way to experience genuine salvation is when a person acknowledges the only thing I can offer God is my filthy sin. That's about it. So we keep that in mind. Today we will look at these two verses. Verses 7 and 8, which remind us that to those who think that they are okay without Christ, or even that they are only in need of a little bit of help with their problems or with their life, as it is in their actuality, this message may be indifferent to them, or to us, if we're thinking that. But oh, to those who know that they are weary and tired and unable, to those who know that their ways have failed and have no strength left, to those, to those of us on that boat, those two verses will bring us great comfort, assurance, and hope. So then, what is Paul's main point in this text? In these two verses that we'll focus on today. Paul's main point is that humans may give their life for a good person. You may be able to find such people. 
Whereas Jesus died for really bad people, for people who hated him. Okay? We're going to see this in three main points. Considering God's mercy, the second part of that sermon series, it will be who would you, each one of you, me, who would we die for? Secondly, we're going to ask ourselves, who is a righteous person anyways? How does a good person look like? And third, we're going to be looking at the unexpected and undeserving love that God provides to those evil people who hate him. All right, let's look at the first point. Who would you, who would I die for? Romans 5, 7. It reads, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. I really like the fact that our young ones are paying attention. That's good, Mr. Nathan. Awesome. Okay, so Paul begins this argument with a supposition that we innately know. It doesn't take much for us to realize this. Paul is given the example that among humans, it is not a natural tendency for us to want to give our life for somebody else. As a matter of fact, our natural tendency is the opposite. The natural instinct of a human being is self-preservation. In other words, if ever faced in a life or death situation when out in our daily routine, whatever we're doing, if we have to choose between either my life or the life of another person, perhaps a stranger or even a co-worker, my default position is going to be, I'm going to cover my bases, right? I will preserve my life. And our reasoning may be something like, you know, i got a better reason to live than these other people. You know, I have family, I have kids. Each of us will have our own reason, right? So, sorry, but i got to save myself. This part of human reasoning goes with the way we're wired. Self-preservation. And it is a rarity, Paul is saying, it's, it's rare that we would put our life on the line for others. This is part of the reason why we honor God when we honor those who put their life at risk to serve others. Emergency personnel, first responders, military, police force, etc. Generally speaking, the role of those entities are to run towards danger when all of us civilians are running away from danger, like imminent danger, like you're going to die if you step in there. Right? So that's an example of how such behavior, such devotion of those people who serve in that way is honorable. Those folks in secret service who protect high diplomats and the president, right? They, they make a vow that if needed, they will go in front of the president to save the president's life, right? Agree, disagree, or whoever it is the president, doesn't matter. That person is doing something honorable. They're making that vow. Scripture has a theme of reminding us then that 
those who are children of God specifically, that we should have a daily reminder to deny ourselves of the inclination to self-preservation, self-interest, self-service that we have. We all have that. We see that in Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4, as just one example. It says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his interest, but also to the interest of others. Okay. Now that is specifically a command, a reminder for Christians. And it is hard enough, right, for those of us who have been changed and we are in Christ. It's hard enough. Right, imagine, let alone for someone who is not a Christian. More on that a little bit later. So then to those of us that claim to be Christians... This is a heading check of our maturity and our sanctification. That is, what are my main interests? What is it that drives me on a daily basis? What are my short-term goals? What are my long-term goals? Are those purposes that have kingdom-oriented or self-oriented results in mind? Now, if you were to say, I would consider myself successful in the next five years if fill in that blank. How would you fill that blank? Is it something primarily to benefit you and your needs and your desires? Or is the kingdom of God central somewhere in there? Or at least is that in order for you to make someone else's life, spiritual well-being, provision, protection better? Or is it about me, me, me? If we are the prime beneficiary of such plans that does not include others first, let alone God first, that's a reality check for those of us that are Christians. And for those that are not Christians, it's even a bigger reality check. So returning there to the verse at hand, and Paul is saying this, it is rare that a person would volunteer to die for another person. All of us would instinctively say, please keep me out of that one. I'll sit out on that exercise So volunteering to die for something. It is not natural for us to volunteer for such things. Yet, a second point of application for that idea applies specifically for men. All the more for those of us that are husbands, and for those that are young men that are preparing maybe for finding a godly wife or to those that are even teenagers, right? We have a couple of those here. This is how we start to mold our worldview. That as Christian men, you are called to be husbands, fathers, to protect, to provide. And yes, even to die for your family if they came down to it. Ephesians 5, verse 25 says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So to you men, to you young men, in the home, whatever home you're in right now, to all of us men here, 
the primary role and ultimate role of servanthood is ours. Yes, the wife is a helper. Yes, there's a role for the, for the woman as well. But the primary role of servanthood, which includes up to dying for our wives and our family, if it came to that, is ours. That's pretty extreme, right? Few of us, God forbid, would ever be faced with that situation. But would a husband really love his wife or really love his children if, again, God forbid, faced with that situation, you would say in your heart, you know what? Sorry, honey. I hate to break it to you, but it's going to be you that's going to go. <laughs> right? Let's ponder. Let's make that question in our mind. If such is our attitude as coward men, do we really love our wives and do we really love God? And have we ever been really saved if we are selfish in that manner? And as much as, as it hurts to say it, for us men, sometimes it's hard enough denying our own desires to serve our wives, let alone to die for them. If I cannot say amen to that, as Bodhi says, May I say, ouch. That's true. It's hard for me to do that. So Jesus then tells us that one of the genuine tests to those who are his true followers will be not living our daily lives with this selfish interest as our primary means of living. Matthew 16, 25 and 26 says, For whoever would save his life, will lose it. But whoever loses his life, for my sake, will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world, but forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Right? Pretty straightforward there. If we are looking out for us ourselves, we're lost. So then, who would you die for? Who would I die for? Well, if we want to be biblical, we would, as husbands, die for our wives, for our kids. And generally speaking, we would die, each of us, for those that we love, for those that we honor. Right? Maybe we would even die for someone that we don't know, but we know that they have a high esteem, a high position. For somebody that could perhaps be shown to be a, a good person. Which leads us to the second point. What is a good person? What is a righteous person? <clears throat> Looking at the same verse again. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. So given that we have the natural tendency of self-survival. Maybe if we look hard enough. There will be those rare cases that might volunteer to die for a good person. And here it is where we need to make a very clear distinction. What does Paul mean by saying that maybe for, for a righteous person or for a good person, someone may dare to die? Like what does that mean? Paul has made it clear through Romans and through his other epistles, as the scripture as a whole does, that no one is righteous in God's sight. All have gone astray 
from God's ways. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All are deserving of God's righteous judgment, both Jew and Gentile, without excuse. Right? We will be found guilty before a holy God. Paul has made that clear. Okay. Therefore, here, let's look at what Paul means when he says a righteous person, quote unquote, or a good person. What does that mean? A righteous person, dikaios in the Greek, means a person who is characterized by righteous actions and morals. Somebody who is upright, morally speaking, straight shooter, law-abiding citizen, right? A good person, the word there in Greek, agathos, is a person who is good to other people, benevolent, give to charity, doesn't cheat on his taxes, right? Is looking out for the good of his community. Would it be a shame to say that some of us, even being Christians, already got disqualified even from that? Right? Shame on us. In any case, that would be the person who is supposing will find somebody to die for them. That, that would, that's what Paul means. Someone who is a good, law-abiding citizen, genuinely caring for his people, his family, his community. Paul says, if such person was found in a life or death situation, someone, although it may be rare, would be out there and say, you know what, I'm going to die for that person. Or they act in the, in, the, in the moment in order to die for that person. And when Paul uses here that term righteous person or good people, the key is this, that is according to human standards. Okay, that's the key. When Paul says somebody might even dare to die for a good person, that is according to human standards. And we need to understand that even if that well-behaved person got their life spared because someone who is noble and courageous died for them, that person that was saved in that situation, they still have a moral failure before God. They still are in need of a savior, not only to save their life there and then, but to save their soul. Right? Because that person, even though they are a good law-abiding citizen, they still have a debt that only Jesus can pay. As Jesus is the only one that is available with the moral funds, if you will, to pay their sin debt. Jesus then is uniquely qualified in order to redeem those that need saving of their soul, not only saving of their life, because Jesus was conceived without sin. He lived a sinless life of perfect obedience that you and I have already failed at. He died on the cross, a death that you and I deserve. He was our substitute. He took our punishment. And he resurrected on the third day and is glorified and seated at the right hand of God the Father. He is the only one with those qualifications who can die for others in order to be able to redeem their soul, even for that law-abiding citizen, which, as I briefly mentioned, we failed even that. That is a very important concept. Let us look at Psalm 49, verses 7 through 8. This kind of drives the point home. It says, Truly, no man can ransom another, 
or give to God the price for his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice. See, there it is. Humanly speaking, I could be courageous enough to die for my wife, my kids, whoever it may be. But even then, they still need a savior to save their soul. See that? Because, as the psalm here said, the price for their life is something that no other human being has. They still have a debt against God. So then, how can we get out of that predicament then? Even if somebody spares our life, our soul is still damned. Leads us to our third and final point, God's unexpected and underserving love. The next verse in our passage today, Romans 5.8, reads, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. First thing to note there, God did not die for good people. Why? Because in God's sight, there's nobody that's good. None. We all have a F. Whereas Paul has described an example of a good person according to human standards, the standard of perfection is God's moral law. And no one can meet that. So then, again, a warning. When asked, most people will affirm that if they were to become judged by God at that instance, that they would be judged as being mostly good because of their deeds or even because of their intentions, their good intentions. And that would outweigh their bad moral behavior. If this is you today, my friend, you are headed to a rude awakening when you meet your Creator. Become a new creation in Christ, repenting of sin, asking Jesus to forgive you, and He will give you the new nature that you need. We see that in 2 Corinthians 5.17. It says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Christ did not die for those who think they are good. No such thing. Secondly, God makes saints out of sinners. Many think that being good is a requirement for God to reach them. Some may acknowledge they are far from God, and yet, how many times have we heard, like, all right, yeah, I'll, I'll go to church, or I'll come to your Bible study, or I'll talk to you about the gospel, but let me clean up my act first, because I'm, like, I'm not doing too good right now. It's a false gospel. For one, you're never going to clean up your act. You're never going to be good enough to come to God. Luke 5, 31, 32, which we quoted last week, but it applies here again, it says, and there's a context where Jesus was being accused of being with all the bad crowd, right? What did he say? Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So then the key here is that being godly, being a righteous person before God, is the result of trusting in God, in Christ, and repenting of our sins. Then, if we were to use these terms, the prerequisite for being righteous before God is to be a sinner. 
know what the good news is? You qualify today. Sign up, right? <laughs> like they tell you at the uh, at the dealership. You qualify. So then God transforms this sinner into a saint. Being a saint is not the requirement for God's acceptance, but the result of it. Now, what is a saint? A saint is somebody who is set apart. Someone who has been redeemed by Jesus. It is those that are Christians. That is, the church, the children of God. If you have trusted in Christ today, I can call you saint. Put your name right there. So then this transformation from a sinner to a saint is God's love shown to us. It is undeserved. It is, in many ways, unexpected. This is the difference. Whereas we as humans would only die, maybe, would only die for those that we consider worthy of us dying for them. Jesus died for those who were undoubtedly unworthy of anyone dying for them. For the worst of the worst. Colossians 1, 21 and 22 says, And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled his body of flesh by his death in order to present you a holy and blameless above reproach before him. See that? Being alienated, being far from God, being against God, being an enemy of God, having nothing to do with God. In that state, Christ reaches people. Right? Paul himself, he's the one writing this. Was he looking for God when God reached him? Jesus appeared to him personally? Was he zealous for, for Jesus? No, he thought he was doing good. But he was actually showing how much of an enemy he was to Jesus. In that state, Jesus saved him in the most underserving moment. And then when Jesus reaches those people, he makes them not only saints and blameless before God the Father, acceptable, but he also makes them friends and he's also their Lord. He's not only a Savior, he is a Lord. John 15, 13 says, Greater, has, greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. Let us not fool ourselves thinking that Jesus is our homie and therefore I can do whatever I want. No such thing. He said you are his friend if you obey his commandments. So the thought of Christ dying for us then, is remember, it was when we least deserved it. That is great news. That should bring us joy, gratitude, hope, and humility. Joy? Why joy? Because the most valuable gift that we could receive has been given to us. Eternal life. It should bring us joy. Gratitude. Why gratitude? Because a measure, a test of whether we are really in the faith, will show an attitude of gratitude. 
always tell my kids that. Make sure you show an attitude of gratitude. There's no reason for complaints in my house. Right? Attitude of gratitude. In the household of God, there's no reason for complaints. An attitude of gratitude. That should also bring us hope. Right? Why hope? Reminding us that biblical hope is not wishful thinking. Rather, it is the assurance that although we may be grieved by various trials and tribulations, it is only for a little while. That's Peter 1 6. 1 Peter 1 6 tells us. So the hope that we see in tribulation and trouble, in test in this life, is that that's only for a little while, and it's nothing compared to the glory we will live in a, in a resurrected body, in a renewed mind, with Jesus for eternity. So when we have that as the goal, whatever issues we're looking at now, all of a sudden become insignificant. And being recipients then of God's unexpected love, is humility to know that all that has been given to us in Christ it was not because you were special or because you were better than the person next to you as a matter of fact many of us were actually worse there were I've always thought that there were better candidates for God to save than me but because of his abundant mercy he died for us the most undeserving one Nothing we earned, nothing you did, but rather, because you were at your worst when God had mercy and saved you. So all this then, hope, joy, gratitude, humility, should draw us to a response of worship. This should bring us to a response of obedience to God. This should bring us to a conviction of telling others about the great God that we serve. So then what we can leave with here today? What can we go away with? Remember, who would you die for? That question should teach us the principle that although most of us, God willing, will never be put in that situation of having to die for another person, yet we are to follow Jesus' example of self-sacrifice. A true test for the Christian, are you being self-sacrificial? Self-sacrificing. If you do not know Christ, know this. Even if you do acts of self-sacrificing, it is of no merit before God. So why is it important to bring ourselves to do acts of self-sacrifice when we are in Christ? Well, because it brings honor to Christ. Let us look at 1 Corinthians 10.31. It says... Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, they may be saved. We bring honor and glory to God by self-sacrificing our lifestyle, our heart, our thoughts. That honors God and it should draw others to God so that they can be saved. It is the way that we testify of Jesus. And then, let us go away with the reminder that the only thing we could offer God 
is our sin. So, a dead body, remember we said last week, a dead body can do nothing but stink. There's no goodness we can offer Christ. Therefore, today, whether we are in Christ or outside of Christ, let us be reminded to fall upon the mercy of Christ and that there's nothing outside of trusting Jesus that can do us any good to become right in the sight of God. Let us remember that only by faith in Christ it is that the benefits of being children of the Most High are given to us. And that is undeserved. And that is God's unfailing love towards His children. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the text this morning in which we see the contrast of what we would do as selfish humans and what Christ has done as our mighty King and Savior. Let us bend our knee in mind and in heart and thought to the great King that has paid it all for us. And for some of us here that may not think we have that faith, let us cry out to God and say, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Save me, Lord. And we count in the promise that all those who come to God, all those who trust in Christ with an attitude of humility and repentance, we have the assurance that He will not turn those away, but will embrace Him as His children. May your Holy Spirit make this truth alive in our lives this very morning. In Jesus' name, amen.